HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kitchens Confidential, helping restaurants strive and thrive in a takeout-driven market. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how delivery went from convenience to crucial. In a pre-COVID universe, the commissions from these third-party delivery service providers were really high, and you were seeing oftentimes they were as high as 30%, right? I mean, all food is about basically the history of money and the history of technological change, but takeout in particular... I'll go ring a doorbell and watch somebody come outside and wipe down their door in their doorbell after I leave. It's kind of creepy, kind of weird, but that's the state of uh, where we are now. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We're recording remotely, and it's Tuesday, September 1st, 2020. One of our favorite guests over the years has been British author Pete Brown. I've followed his books on cider and beer, and he he came up with a new book uh, during the COVID quarantine that I think we've all been wanting to to read and, and talk about for a while, and I'm glad he wrote this book. So, Let's just take a minute and have each guest introduce themselves, and we'll start the conversation. Pete? My name's Pete Brown. I'm a writer based in London, England. Great. Stephen? Uh, my name's Steve Beaumont. I'm also a writer, but I'm based in Toronto, Canada. And B.R.? And I'm B.R. Rolio, Shelton Brothers Importers, based in New York City. Okay. So, Pete, just bring us up to speed on the book. Uh, you know, I know you gave a talk about it um, last year. Um, why did you write this book? What's what's the general premise? Originally, I started writing it uh, to wind people up and to piss people off, and uh, it kind of grew out of that, really. Um, I've, I've been obsessed, like I think probably a lot of people have, with the, the debate over the meaning of craft beer, and even though I've never thought there was a satisfactory outcome, I, I got more frustrated with the people who said, well, because there isn't a satisfactory definition, that means it doesn't exist, that means it's not a thing. And I was thinking about that in the back of my mind for years, and then I found a book a couple of years ago that talked about craft uh, in its broad sense, but not in relation to craft beer. And when I started reading that and reading about broader notions of craft, and I said, well, how does this word craft 
fit in if we if we put beer to one side for a minute and think about what craft is and then once we've analyzed that and learned about that if we then come back to beer from that perspective what does that teach us and and so the book was an example to do that really and and in the end i'm sure it's still going to piss a few people off but that's no longer my main intention yeah you, you definitely start by almost breaking down craft and then you build it up again uh with your own you know really good argument so thank you you're welcome. Yeah. And Stephen, um, the reason I invited you to the show is we, we saw you were uh, mentioned in the acknowledgments and you also are quoted on the inside cover. Yeah. Um, well, Pete sent me um, an advanced copy of the book to, yeah, he was, he was very open about it. He said, no, no pressure, but if there's anything you'd like to say, I'd love to hear it. Um, I got a couple of clangers in the editing process that hadn't been done yet, so uh, I sent those off to Pete, um, and then I finished reading it, um, and I, I was quite impressed by the whole thing, and, and it actually, the quote that I gave references his book, Hops and Glory, where, you know, he did the insane thing of uh, taking a, a cask of ale all the way to India. Um, and I thought I, I made the, the parallel of this as kind of the literary equivalent of this kind of heavy liftings, making this voyage, starting from craft and then going through to, you know, what what really does this mean when applied to beer? It's a, it's a fun book. That's great. And, and Pete, you know, you, you definitely have some great resources uh, in the book. I know you you reference Garrett Oliver. You also reference importer Dan Shelton. Um, how did you, you know, let's start us with the book, the research process. Um, we know we've all talked about what craft beer means. Um, there's different definitions. There's the Brewers Association, but, but tell us the, the meat of the, of the book and how you really got into it. So in the first section of the book, I look at all the definitions that have been around for a while. Uh, I, I start with Vince Catoni's definition from, uh, 1986 and I kind of, I unfairly whip that to death. Uh, it, it's not his fault. You know, craft became a bigger thing than the thing he was defining in the early 80s, mid 80s. Uh, then I move on to the Brewers Association definition and show how that is not fit for purpose. Um, and then uh, move on to a definition that I found that was written by Dan Shelton uh, in about 2009 that I found in a an old copy of a, a Belgian beer guide. And and none of these are fit for purpose because you you, you can't find something which is both measurable uh, and meaningful um, and flexible enough to work for what for what craft beer is. So it's kind of okay. Should we just give up now? Maybe I should have done. And uh, but what I did instead was uh, look at the so this idea of craft as we think of it irrespective of beer goes back to around the late 19th century and the birth of the arts and crafts movement when you have the the big industrialization of work and the separation of uh, the labor that people put into work from the results of their labor so work becomes something that's very uh, kind of oppressive and people don't get a chance to kind of have any say in what what they do with their work and this idea of craft was a quite a naive um, movement, but a very um, influential movement to try and get that back. And so I, I look at that quite a lot. And reading stuff that, by the way, I've never read before. I, I've not looked at this before, so it was all new to me when I was when I was doing the reading. Uh, and it brought me around to quite a different place in terms of how I thought about craft beer. Okay. Um, one part of that is: Does craft have to have 
you know, artisan is it? Does it have to be handcrafted? Yeah, that's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because that's the first thing that people think. Uh, they say, well, it's handmade, it's handcrafted, that's what craft is. That's what a lot of definitions of craft outside beer kind of relate to. And it's a very, um, what's the word? Yeah, it's a very limiting definition if you stick to that. Uh, and, I, and I talk about, um, um, I, I start with talking about a sparging arm in a mash tun. And so as soon as you've got that in, it's not technically handcrafted anymore because that's do, that's a machine doing a job that human can do. And that's a really pedantic point. The book's full of really pedantic points. Um, but if you allow a sparging arm, do you then uh, allow uh, a self-cleaning uh, mash tun? If you allow that, do you then allow, um, you know, uh, automated uh, brewery systems? And the more you allow, the more you get away from this idea of handcrafted, but but... Is it still craft beer? And I think by the end of it, I say, well, it kind of is. Hand, handcrafters is a lovely thing to have, but craft is more about the intent and the ownership. Um, if if a if a brewer is uh, fully in charge of the process and brewing the beer that they want to brew and using the level of technology and equipment that they want to use, then my argument is that it's it's still a craft beer, even if the entire brewing process is is fully enclosed. Many years ago, we did a show about uh, we were trying to split the definition between contract brewed beers and gypsy brewers. And everyone seemed to think at the time that gypsy brewers were cool, but contract brewing wasn't. Uh, Stephen, um, following this, the craft you know, argument, what, what are some you know, topics that have come up or, or you'd like to mention? Well, you know, Jimmy, I'm glad you bring up the whole contract uh, brewing thing. Um, I think the movement now is to stop talking about gypsy brewing and more um, nomadic brewing or however you want to phrase it. Um, and, the, you know, there's this sense that if you don't have skin in the game, if you're not paying money to have equipment, that somehow your beer is not as worthy, um, which to me is, is, is a little bizarre. Um, because, you know, anyone who has a lot of money can buy equipment. It it's, doesn't mean that you're committing your life to beer if you have an extra couple million in the bank and you go, okay, I'm going to use 750000 of this to buy a brewery. Um, what, what makes the difference is dedication to creating some great beers. And I think there are contract brewers who just have you know, an idea of a great brand. And yes, I want to build this brand. Uh, and I don't really care what it tastes like. And then there are contract brewers who just really do care about what they're putting out. They want to make the best beer they possibly can. And a lot of those people, once they get a little capital behind them, they go on and they do open their own brewery. I mean, you look at the example of New Zealand and the New Zealand brewing industry would be probably half of what it is today if they hadn't had contract brewing over there. Wow, that's great. And uh, you travels a lot. Um, have you curtailed your traveling because of the pandemic? I have not. I got back uh, like two days before lockdown here in Toronto in March, and I haven't been anywhere since, and it's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Toronto, I know um, uh, BR Roy also, we're friendly with Godspeed. That, that was Luke formerly of, Due to Seattle, and you said that you might be drinking a Godspeed beer today. I am drinking an Ikenuki from Godspeed right now. Um, it's his homage to Bamberg. Um, it's a Keller beer, and the he he says his inspiration is the Ungerspundet from Mar beer, 
but he adds a little smoked malt to it. So it's a it's a really lovely smoked Keller beer. Oh, that's great. Go that's nothing to do with that's nothing to do with Godspeed the band, is it? No, 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 no. It, <laughs> um, Luke Luke is a Quebecois brewer who came to Toronto via Japan, and he has this, this great affection for all things Japanese except for their beer styles. <laughs> Although he actually he is from his time in Montreal is uh friends with the the Godspeed band folks and we were talking when he was Godspeed was playing a show in Brooklyn and we were hoping ideally to have a collaboration brew that they would do um for the to release here in the US uh, during both the, a launch of Godspeed the brewery uh after the show but that unfortunately never came to pass. That would be so cool. Their, their music is just like the music of 2020, basically. It's so doom-laden and apocalyptic. It's, uh... Oh, definitely. <laughs> well, and, and since BR's on, um, uh, I know that Pete references Dan Shelton and, and his kind of, I call it the Shelton seal of approval, but um, how would you d- describe, because you, you rep so many of the Shelton beers, how would you describe <laughs> the Shelton ethos for selecting beer and and do you call it your beer good beer or craft beer? Uh, I think we just call it beer. Um, essentially, the the aesthetic is is beers that we like to drink. You know, it, there's not initially when we when it, when the company first started out. Before I was with the company, it was you know focusing primarily on classic styles um, from Belgium and Germany uh, and England. Things that you know, sort of the best examples of of a British IPA or the best example of a Keller beer, uh, obviously have since branched out from that, but it still has to be, you know, we, we want to work, you know, the company, we want to have people, uh, brewers who we respect brewers who we agree with their philosophy of, you know, not necessarily rushing things, um, taking their time, making quality products, um, you know, whether it's it's a contract brew, whether it is a gypsy nomadic brew, or, or whether it's you know someone like Mars who's been doing it and for hundreds of years in the family. Great. And then back to Pete to your book. My first question is: Does size matter? Um, you know, I think that for a while people wanted to call this beer microbrewed. Um, you really you dive into that a lot in the book. Yeah, I. Um... I mean, the first definition of craft beer was to get away from the idea that it was microbrewed, and then the first clause in the the first definition of craft beer was was about size, saying that it was small, and and one problem with that is that small is um, highly subjective. You know, what is small in the United States is pretty huge here in the UK, um, and the second problem with that is uh, that it penalises success, it penalises growth, and I, I, I touch on. Um, you know the Ferrari around when when the Brewers Association changed its definition from two million barrels to six million barrels to accommodate Sam Adams' growth, and and they didn't really have a choice other than to do that because if they hadn't done that, then uh, come the next kind of auditing of market figures, uh, Sam Adams' volume would have been subtracted from the craft column and entered into the macro column, and then people would have been able to say, hey, look, um, craft beer has slumped by two million barrels this year. The craft boom is over. When in fact, what happened was craft grew so much <laughs> that uh, that that you had to kind of look at redefining it. Um, so I think that is a real problem. I think I think my, a common theme through the book is that uh, if you take something like size, it's usually small. It's often small. Uh, as soon as you say small is a precondition, uh, then you have to start kind of excluding people you don't want to exclude. 
And then there's one more area of the book that I liked. Uh, you seem that you say that American kind of defined what craft beer is, IPAs and everything. And how was it seen in England? Because you already had traditional beers in England. It's one of the biggest, for people like me who've been around uh, for a little while, it's one of the biggest frustrations imaginable um, in that uh, for here, for, for a lot of people who drink craft beer here, craft beer is American. Uh, it is super hoppy. It's hazy. You know, there are people who say, oh, this beer is not craft beer because I can see through it. Um, but it's an American beer style. It's got a young uh, countercultural attitude. And I'm not criticizing any of these elements at all. I think they're all great things. Um but then they turn around to British beer and say, well, this is not craft beer. And you go, well, it's brewed with traditional ingredients. It's brewed in small batches. It's brewed on a local basis. Uh, it's true to traditional uh, beer styles. How is this not craft beer? And it's like, well, because it's an old guy brewing it. <laughs> You're like, well, 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 that's not that's not right. Or, well, because it's because it's fairly bland, uh, or because it's because I don't like the taste of it. It's like, well, I've tasted some pretty sucky craft beers produced by young hip guys, you know. And and I, well, I talk, I've been talking to years for people uh, in the first wave of American craft brewing who say we took our inspiration from British Cascale. So how can British Cascale not be craft beer? if the beers that it inspired are craft beer. And that's a very local problem that we have in the UK. But I guess it's also a problem in Germany where people wouldn't maybe count, young, young German drinkers wouldn't count some traditional, you know, Kellerpils or Rauch beer as craft beer because it's just been around for ages. It's boring. And you look at Belgium and you think, what, are we going to say that Trappist beers and Abbey beers aren't craft beer because they've been around for, you know, 100 years or so? That's that's incredible. You know, that's some of the finest craft beers in the world. Can I can I jump in for a second, Jimmy? Go, Steve. Um, I you know, as you know, I'm the co-author of the World Atlas of Beer, and Tim Webb and I have the third edition of that coming out this fall. Um, unfortunately, only in the UK to start. It won't be in the US until next year. Uh, but Tim, uh, being based in England, he makes the case that possibly the first craft brewery of the modern era is actually Trek Airhouse in Scotland, where they, you know, put a brewery into this old inhabited, old, the oldest inhabited house in Scotland. They they stuck a brewery into it, and this goes back to the 60s, um, where they started making, you know, these old style Scottish ales and Trecare House Ale is still around today. And he, he says, you know, maybe that was the first craft beer of modern times. Well, that's a really interesting point. And I was going to ask Bjorg, back to the talking about the Shelton Brother beers, you know, how does tradition play into it? And, and does size, do, do you limit your, your beers based on the size of the brewery? Um, we tend to limit based on size simply because of the the distri distribution network and what we can do i mean we i don't think it it's not necessarily that we don't want a larger brewery but we also want to expose smaller breweries that might not otherwise get attention you know i mean there's there's you know no need to for example take someone the size of sam adams or something you know they they don't need the exposure so uh, and in this day and age, a lot of the larger breweries you know, already have working on their own representation and, and marketing. So we, we like to keep it small. Um, you know, and, and it can be an old brewery. It can be a new brewery. We love the traditional styles. And, you know, a lot of those 
were, were in danger of being forgotten or overlooked um, because, uh, as Pete was saying, people just found them boring. Um, you know, but we find a lot of those beers delightful, and there's a reason why they've been around for hundreds of years. But it's also fun to see the new scenes that are happening, say, in Scandinavia, using a lot of local in- ingredients. So, um, you know, we prefer the smaller ones, but that's it's not a hard and fast rule. Yeah. And Pete, back to your book. Um, what is Michael Jackson, or what did he say about the early days of craft beer? Well, it's like everything else, isn't it? You think you think other people have created something interesting and new, and you dig into it, and it turns out that Michael did it first. Um, so uh, Michael, uh, in his World Guide to Beer, uh, talked about craft-brewed beers, um, and he didn't define what they were. And this is really interesting because Jackson defined a lot of things in beer. You know, he he had the, he was the first person to have a go at doing beer styles uh, and putting definitions around various different aspects of, of beer. And he just said, "This is a crafted beer. This this is a craft brewed beer, and this is a craft brewery." Uh, about um, Belgian breweries in particular, and, and French breweries, and a couple of American breweries. And my suspicion is that what he was trying to do with language was to try to tell a British readership that there were really interesting beer styles that had integrity and tradition that were not British cask condition real ale. Um, because at the time he was writing, good beer was cask ale and everything else was terrible, and which was obviously such a wrong headed view of the world but he was the first guy writing about beer to to explore that and to bring that to life uh so that's my hunch as to why he talked about craft beer he certainly did try and define it and i'm sure he would have been um quite bemused by what it's turned into and Stephen, you know with the world atlas of beer i feel like you guys you and tim have kind of taken uh taken what michael jackson did um do you want to keep talking about this well, yeah, I mean, with, with the first edition back in 2012, we felt a huge amount of personal pressure because Tim and I were both friends of Michael's. Um, we both had a great sense of history in what we were taking on with the World Atlas of Beer. Uh, and even for the same publisher that he used um, for his World Guide to Beer. So we, we felt a lot of um, kind of historic pressure to to come up with something that would would have made Michael proud and uh, we felt that we did and then the second edition we felt we did a little better and for this third edition uh, we've actually rewritten the entire thing cover to cover and uh, we're we're pretty confident that it's the most comprehensive book on what's going on in the world we even managed to sneak in some uh, updates uh, to the COVID era just before it was going to presses. So we've got as, a, as as modern as we possibly could on this one. Uh, was there anything that, that surprised you in writing this book? Any new brewery or oh, God. New, Jimmy, new phenomenon? At this stage, almost everything surprises me and nothing surprises me at the same time. <laughs> um, you know, I... I mentioned I got back uh, two days before lockdown happened in Toronto. I was down in Brazil and uh, I was drinking these astounding Brazilian beers. And this is a young, young craft beer market down there. And yet they're doing things that are so exciting, so innovative. Um, I think I, I probably mentioned it in the book. Latin America as a whole 
is the most exciting place for beer in the world today. Um, the Latin American brewers are just taking things and making that their own. It, it's really, really thrilling down there. Um, I'm constantly running into new breweries. I mean, if you start saying, oh, specifically this brewery, that brewery, there's there's just no stopping because, you know, we, we figure some t- somewhere between 25,000 and 30,000 breweries in the world today, plus or minus. That's great. And um, Pete, back to you. So talking about traditions versus, you know, it's like cask ale versus industrial beer. You know, is craft beer something that, has to come in a can now. I, I remember when 15, 20 years ago, I think that we all thought that craft beer had to be on draft. And there were people that were passing off, you know, commercial beers as craft by putting it in draft. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, this is one of my pet hates, really, is that um, a lot of people into craft. So I think Mm, it's, it's it's probably too simplistic to try and say it splits into two people because it, it two kinds of people because it definitely doesn't it splits into quite a lot of different types of people um but we have uh i think a beer lovers who know beer styles who recognize different beer traditions around the world who are excited by new flavors uh who um like to to explore different traditions uh and i'm talking about you know i might someone who might drink a keller beer one day uh, a Belgian Trappist the next day, a New England IPA the next day, and, and evaluate each on its merits. And, and then we have people for whom craft beer is a scene. It's fashionable. It's it's something to be it's, – it's, it's a part of uh, self-definition. It's a, like I keep saying that craft beer is a cultural product as much as it is a, a food and drink product. And, and to those people, craft beer is whatever is new, it's whatever is interesting. And cans have made craft beer a lot more interesting because they've made it, they've really amped up the cultural product side of craft beer. Um, craft beer, I, I'm currently writing a book about beer design and looking at, um, well, it's a kind of about 70% craft cans. Um, and I, I started off thinking about how, a lot of these cans are very interesting. They're very impactful, but but they they kind of get lost on a shelf amid this visual noise. And then realised when I was researching the book and talking to brewers, these beers don't get shown on shelf. They get shown on Instagram, and the label gets rolled out, and you see the whole canvas. And this is about saying, look at this cool artist we're working with. Look at this um, uh, this great design that we've got. And it's like, well, what's the beer style? Oh, hang on a minute, let me go and check. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a really good point. Hey, um, let's just take a short break. We're going to be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Kitchens Confidential, helping restaurants strive and thrive in a takeout-driven market. Whether you're a restaurant with a single location, a food truck, or a chef looking to expand, Kitchens Confidential can help you get your delivery and pick-up-only kitchen up and running in a matter of days. They provide turnkey kitchen space, a state-of-the-art experience hub for pickup orders, and they'll even help you manage and streamline your back-office functions using their proprietary technology platform, so you can focus on what you love the most, making great food. Kitchens Confidential, to go crafted. Learn more at kitchensconfidential.com. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. 
Please support us, heritageradionetwork.org, become a member, and keep us on the air. Um, well, Pete Brown, your, your new book, Crafted an Argument. Um, what was such a big deal about Beaver Town uh, a few <laughs> years ago? So, um, but so wait, Be- I, was, wasn't the owner of Beaver Town as an American, wasn't his, his dad someone from like Led Zeppelin or something? The guy who sets up Beaver Town, his dad is Robert Plant out of Led Zeppelin. Which is pretty damn cool. Uh, I've had dinner with Robert Plant as a result of uh, being a beer writer who lives near Beavertown. Uh, I can't tell you how cool that is. And I'm not even a Led Zepp fan, and I still thought he was cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, in 2018, they sold out. Uh, well, they sold a 49% stake to, to Heineken. And um, and there was wailing and, and gnashing of teeth uh, in the in the UK craft brewing scene about a month later another brewer we've got called four pure sold 100 to line nathan and uh and no one gave a no one gave a crap no one there was there was no outcry whatsoever and and beaver town and four pure brew pretty similar beers uh, of a similar style and a similar level of quality i think they're both really great brewers and um and the beaver town thing was like this is this is really weird this is really there's a lot of pain here that's not just about these guys have sold out the, the people felt personally betrayed and but my background is in in brand management and i i i'd like to be provocative and and part of my thing was beavertown had built a really cool brand they 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 had these kind of uh, aliens that so these skeletons in spacesuits firing ray guns at hop monsters and stuff and they put these things upon big murals at beer festivals they were cool and the guy who set it up was Robert Plant's son. And then, so then when they sold to Heineken, it was kind of like, oh, my God, not you as well. I feel totally betrayed. Uh, and so I use that as the as the forward to the book. Uh, for people who maybe don't understand the emotional investment in craft beer, to say this is how this is how much people care. This is how passionate people are about this whole idea. Before I get into breaking down what this whole idea of craft is, this is how how invested people are in it. Well, that that brings me back to uh, maybe it was eight or nine years ago when Goose Island was was sold, it whatever entirely to Anheuser Busch. I remember that uh, like craft beer bars like the Blind Tiger in New York City that I, that I would take my lead from said that they would no longer carry Goose Island because it it wasn't craft, it wasn't independently owned. And over the years, I, I tried to follow that when, when I had my pub as well. Uh, but it did get kind of confusing after a while. I remember a few years ago, Wicked Weed was also acquired by AB InBev. And you're right, there there wasn't the same reaction. But I still felt like this loyalty uh, to, to that concept of this independently owned craft beer. Um, is it the same in England? Or is, it, <laughs> is it more passionate? It's 100% the same in England. Uh, and I, I try to break out, I, I, I try to put a, a wedge between ideas of craft and ideas of independence because I believe that an independent uh, brewing sector is really important, not not just for, for craft beer and craft beer drinkers, but for the whole market. The independent sector is the bit that gives its dynamism, its forward motion. The whole of beer is better since we had a thriving, healthy, independent sector, because it, it gets everyone else to book their ideas up and to and to do things better. Um, but independence is not the same thing as craft. 
there's a big overlap, sure. Um, but when you look at this broader thing about what it means to be a, a, a craftsperson, uh, if you're a furniture maker or a stained glass window maker or uh, any any of these other kind of classic traditional crafts independence never comes into it it's never mentioned in any discussion of craft outside beer because craftspeople always had wealthy patrons uh that someone if you if you're going to allow someone to use the best ingredients uh and give them really good equipment and allow them the the liberty to sit and um create things in the way that they want to do rather than just some industrial crap then there's got to be some money there from somewhere and then that, that brings us to um, when the craft beer was being first rolled out. Um, what's the price pressure that's on selling in a supermarket, for example, uh, versus selling independently? I mean, this is a uh, this has just been happening in the last twenty four hours here in the UK. Uh, it, this is a debate that re- rears its head every few weeks, uh, and I have to confess to a terrible terrible crime here, uh, which is that in the height of lockdown, uh, after most of my income dried up, um, there was a, a thing online saying, hey, look, here's some Goose Island beers, uh, they're, they're barrel-aged beers in, in Tesco being sold for rock-bottom prices. This is an absolute disgrace. Uh, this is kind of undercutting independent brewers who can't afford to compete on this scale. Craft beer in supermarkets is wrong. And I was on Twitter going, you're absolutely right, it's terrible. Then I was straight onto Tesco.com trying to order some of these beers at these rock-bottom prices because I'm a hypocrite. And uh, <laughs> it's like, if these beers are that cheap, I'm going to buy them. So it's a really, really difficult thing to reconcile uh, as a beer as a beer lover. Um, and my th- there's no proof either way on this. That the, but the best the best interpretation of this, the most optimistic interpretation of this, is that if someone wants to sell their beers in supermarkets and and play the volume game rather than the margin game, maybe that uh, introduces more new people to craft beer who otherwise wouldn't have got into it. And then maybe they're going to go to a bottle shop and buy some of the brands that they can't get in the supermarket. I hope that's true. I have no evidence that it is. You, you know what happened? It's happened in the last 10 years in the coffee trade. When Starbucks first first started spreading in the United States, there was a similar uh, outcry against it by independent businesses. But what, what I feel happened with Starbucks is that it created the premium coffee category. And now where we live in New York City, there's so many independent uh, coffee chains that are all thriving, partly because they can charge the Starbucks price. Yeah, I mean, I hope that's I hope that's the case in a lot of business. And the thing is, some people are going to some people are going to feel that effect, and other people are going to say, "Well, we had a really great bottle shop business until these guys went to the supermarket. They were our biggest selling brands, uh, and then then we lost a load of business." So I, th- I think there is evidence of it working both ways. But I would I would suggest overall that it works the way that you're saying that it helps establish a more premium category in things. And premiumization is a constant in marketing. It's been happening for. 40 50 years now there's always something new that's premium and and people selfishly are always looking to buy something slightly cooler than what the other guys are buying everyone wants to feel that they're a bit more discerning than everybody else and so if you introduce craft beer to this broader audience or or premium coffee there's going to be hopefully enough people who feel that to to uh, to move on and to learn more and to to pay a bit more for something better and and Stephen, going back to that so for you in, in things that you've covered. I remember thinking that the be- the best beer was on draft or in a nice bottle. 
how did you see the transition to really good beer going into cans? Well, it's kind of funny, Jimmy. Um, being a Canadian, uh, we saw that actually pre-Oscar Blues. Um, uh, they, they, the Oscar Blues guys always like to say they were the, the canned beer revolutionaries. But in actual fact, um, craft beer out in Western Canada was going into cans long before um, it was for Oscar Blues. And in fact, the company that created Oscar Blues Micro Canning Machine is a Canadian company. So it wasn't such a heresy. Um, you know, in, in Western Canada back then, uh, you know, 70% of the beer that was sold was being sold in cans. So if craft brewers wanted to compete, they had no choice. They had to go into cans early, and they did. Um, now, going back even earlier, I remember talking to some guys uh, from Pilsner Urkel back in the early 1990s when they were introducing the can into Canada, the 500 milliliter can of Pilsner. Um, and I said, so are you going to take this into the United States? And they said, absolutely not. They said the, the U.S. would never accept a premium beer in a can. So there was a kind of a, even from the big guys, there was this perception that there's a different attitude toward cans and premium beers in Canada than there was in the United States. Um, so it was, I guess it was a smoother transition here. Um, you know, I, I say right now I probably buy 60, 70, maybe 75% of all my beer in cans just because that's the way that it's sold. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those new realities of life. Yeah. And it, it kept a lot of uh, bottle shops and breweries going in, in the States during this quarantine for sure. Hey, BR. So we've had a lot of conversations about good beer, uh, going back to the good beer sale in New York and 2009 um remember what we, we used to what are some things that, that you've taken from it and that you, you'd like to add to this conversation well i mean i think just going back to what Stephen was saying on on the cans in the u.s i mean we have seen you know as recently as maybe even a year ago pushback from our more traditional german brewers who are like oh absolutely we would not put beer in a can because even there it's considered kind of down market um and you know just it's it's a it's a mass-produced beer that's in cans that you know you pick up at the train station or something um you know whereas other countries were much more open to it earlier on um but yeah i mean so much of my beer yet now is is also bought in cans i mean ease of transport especially in the summer but trying to head out to a park or something um but in terms of of good beer and craft i mean it it is a very difficult uh, thing to define because you can talk about uh, an old brewery that's been doing something for many years that has been crafting it for many years um, and then it, it, uh, other breweries that uh, are much more modernized, um, fairly automated but still have passion behind it and create a craft product even though you know it might as Pete was saying you know you when your sparge arm is is mechanical and things it's you know I mean if you're just pushing buttons into into your computer um but making quality product because there's a passion behind it and, and Pete so back to your book um do you think that craft beer as a term is is should no longer be used where does your book end up because I only got to page 88 honestly <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so I'm going to do spoilers. Um, but yeah, it, so, so, so it goes all around this whole idea of craft, uh, going back to the arts and crafts movement, then arrives back at the start of lockdown with all these ideas uh, in my head and looking at me from this perspective. And my, where I get to, I think, is that we should talk about and cherish and uh, support independent brewing, uh, and, and we should call it that. But then we should repurpose the term craft and, and bring it back to what it's meant to be about. And and the the thing about that is, I, I think the reason people want a definition, uh, and if, if, if you'll permit me, I, uh, Americans, more, even more than we do, love to categorize things and, and split things down and measure them. Uh, whenever I watch American sports, I'm amazed about all the stats that run along the bottom of the screen. Yeah, you get that way more than, we're, we're catching up, we're getting more like you. Uh, yeah. but, but it's uh, but you really kind of notice that. And people want a definition of craft beer that's measurable uh, so that they can say brewery A is a craft beer, brewery B is not a craft beer. And it's on the margins where we can go, right, uh, is this beer craft or not? Well, does it meet these criteria or not? We can measure them. We can measure what they do. We can measure what percentage of stake is owned by a big business. We can measure how much uh, barrelage there is. No, it's not a craft beer. And the thing about craft in its broader sense is that it rejects the, this this notion of craft, this idea of craft. It rejects precise measurement. Precise measurement is the antithesis of what craft is really about. When you talk to craftspeople, uh, they don't use measuring tools. They do everything by hand and eye. Um, when you ask a craftsperson how they do what they do, they can't tell you. They can't explain it because it's all about this idea of inherent skill, innate skill uh, that's been built up over years. And so in a way, if we want to talk about craft beer, we're wrong to ask for a measurable definition. And so I get to this kind of fairly arch place where I'm saying it is possible to define craft beer, but not in a way that you can measure. And and knowing that that's going to wind a lot of people up, it's like, well, what's the point of having a definition if you can't measure it? Well, you know, it describes what it is. And and that's and that's enough. And that's that's where I, I, I get to as a as a new definition of craft, which is about uh, the job satisfaction that people get from doing it, the motivation for why they're doing it. And you can't measure it. And I, I frankly, I don't care that you can't measure it. Um, Stephen, you're, you're interviewing Pete for an article. What, what's the question you're going to ask him first? <laughs> it's funny because I was uh, I was just looking over at the um, Ikanuki Godspeed uh, can that is sitting on my desk beside me, and I I noticed um, not for the first time there the slogan of the brewery, and it's called "Made with Struggle and Love." And I'm thinking, hey, what is the definition of craft? Perfect, perfect. <laughs> That's not a bad definition, actually. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And then, and BR in your portfolio, you know, like, like Godspeed's, you know, from that Quebec group, like due to CL. Are there certain places where this ethos of you know hard work and and craftsmanship uh, is still thriving? Um, I, I think it's thriving everywhere. And I think there's always going to be new people who are inspired to take it up uh, even more so. You know, now it's coming from people who are into the craft scene. It's not so much homebrewers who are brewing something that they haven't, they weren't able to get previously and then became proficient at it and thought, hey, I'm going to start a brewery. Um, I mean, it's it's now it seems like it's a mix of people who 
Lovecraft beer, whatever the definition of that is, but to 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 them, what they feel craft beer is, and and people who are home brewers as well. Um, but I think it's 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 there's there's passion and all around the world, um, and I, I don't see it stopping anytime soon because people it's always evolving. People are always going to be either interested in something new and new ingredients, or they're going to go back to the classics and then re- rediscover them, uh, or perhaps discover them for the first time and then realize, oh, you know, I this is where this style comes from, and now I'm learning more about the the basis of it. Um, but I think it's just it's a very it's a very fruitful time right now with just so many uh boundaries that people are willing to go past um sometimes with success and sometimes not um but also people willing to respect tradition and I think that's it's a it's a a lot of things are are available to everyone whatever whatever styles you're into and uh Steve's drinking Godspeed from Toronto. Uh, what are you drinking today, BR? Will you be drinking? <laughs> I'm right now. I'm drinking water because if I were to have a beer right now, I'd fall asleep. Um, no, uh, one beer that's been in our fridge that we've really enjoyed locally uh, is the cans of the Fifth Hammer Pinata Bebop, which is one of their sours. Um, it's uh, with uh, blood orange and pineapple. But unlike a, a lot of the fruit beers, sour fruit beers that I find that we have domestically um this one's like nice and balanced with just sort of it's very refreshing for summer fruity with an, a nice balancing acidity without being you know hit you over the head great and back to pete so pete uh when beaver town sold uh, who are some of the diehards in the uk whether bottle shops or breweries that led the outrage Oh, I don't want to name names, <laughs> <laughs> but you do in the book. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I think some of them. Uh, so yeah, so so Brewdog, uh, who are um, now the nineteenth largest brewing concern in the world, according to some figures, uh, but still fully independent. So so there's a conundrum for you. Um, the, the, they immediately announced that they weren't going to be stocking Beaver Town uh, in their bars anymore. And and Brewdog have laid out their stall about being about independence, so so they had to do that. And then you get small independent bottle shops. I mean, there's a, there's a great, wonderful bottle shop in uh, South London called Hot Burns and Black, and and th- their proposition is that they sell beers from small independent breweries. So they had to sell, they had to stop selling Beaver Town on the day that it uh, announced its its sale, um, and it grieved them massively that they had to do this. They they love the people at Beaver Town. They, they weren't abusive when they announced this. They said, "We love you guys, but we can only sell your beers. This is a real blow to us because you account for about ten percent of our business." Um, and <clears throat> and and my thing is, if you if you've got skin in the game and you set up your stall as being all about small and independent, you you get the right to to criticize people uh like beaver town who who sell a stake in the business to a major if you're some keyboard warrior sitting in an office uh on your apple mac uh just tweeting how disgusting beaver town are um in your in your coffee break then then your your opinion is not valid because because you're taking the 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 corporate money as well and you've not put everything on the line. You've not sacrificed everything to build up this brewery from nothing. And my view is, you you don't get an opinion on this. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in there, Pete, because I have I have a bit of an issue with what you just said, because so many craft breweries um, uh, they they build their business on this idea that 
we're not the big guys, we're your community, support local, support our local independent business. And they, they develop a relationship with the consumer. So the beer drinker is now drinking more than just a beer. They're drinking an ethos. They're drinking this, this friendship they have with this brewery. They go to the brewery tap room. They go and they buy, they pay extra for special releases, all this kind of stuff. And then that same brewery turns around and takes some big brewery money and says, oh, no, but everything's going to be in the same. I mean, that's going to get emotional. Yeah, it is. It is. It absolutely is. So I understand where the emotion comes from, and it's and it is one of those uh, conversations that's been going on ever since uh, Goose Island sold, uh, and it will continue, and it and it won't be solved. Um, and uh, oh god, what was I going to say? I have to cut something out. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I completely lost my train of thought there. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's an emo- it's an emotive issue. It's an emotive issue, and. Um, it becomes separated from the beer itself. Uh, you get these people saying, well, now it's going to be just terrible, uh, bland corporate beer. They're going to cut, cut all the uh, expenses and things like that. So, well, at least wait and let them do that first. You, you can't assume that's going to happen. Um, but I, I do, when I'm in my more dispassionate moments, I do find it intellectually fascinating how strong these feelings are and, uh, and how much beer is a cultural product. And Pete, you, you've really got your hands in, in so many different aspects of craft beer. A couple of years ago, when we first had you on the show, you introduced me to uh, some New York-based craft beer exporters. Um, how, how do you work in, in the field? Because you're, you're more than just a writer. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Uh, it's very tricky because I would love to be just a writer. I would love that more than anything. Uh, but there isn't enough money to pay my mortgage in uh, in beer writing. So I occasionally do consultancy. Uh, I have a, a rule of my own. So there are people who would strike me off the artistic roll call for even speaking to uh, big brewers and so on. Uh, my rule is that I never work with someone who I then also write about. So I, I, I don't go, I don't help someone develop a new beer and then go, hey, there's this great new beer. Uh, so I, I do a bit of business side. That's my background. My background is in advertising, marketing, consultancy, and so on. Uh, that tends to be for the bigger guys, and that's cool because I, I don't really want to write about them. So then I split it and write about the smaller guys. And then just back to the book, um, this ethos of craft, I mean, you did dive deep into you know theories of arts and crafts. Why did you quote Descartes? the philosopher because that's the moment where i was like wow maybe i should skip ahead from this oh go on remind me of that quote (laughs) are you serious descartes (laughs) it's not to be or not to be but i can't remember i i totally can't remember it (laughs) so you got to read the book kids that's the whole thing um Man, someone's gonna someone's gonna pull it up and 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 know what it is, but um, but you so you did you did dive in deep, you know, um, and, and I appreciated that. Um, in the end, I I'll tell you what I took away from it. I took away from that that size doesn't matter. I think you, you did talk a lot about in the beginning um, that the the original craft beer people probably never thought that craft would grow. It, and so that was probably why it was identified as small. Is that the case? Uh, 
Yeah, they certainly couldn't have ever envisaged it was going to grow to be a the, the multi-billion dollar business that it is because they set up in opposition to that kind of business. Uh, and this is one of the biggest paradoxes in craft is that, oh, let's, let's create something small um, for people who don't want to buy uh, beer off these really huge corporations. Oh, shit, there's an awful lot of people, way more than we thought, who don't want to buy beer off these big corporations. Uh, so what are we going to do? And it would be great if... Um, Everyone said, okay, well, let's just all go hyper-local and let's all of us just buy beer from our our local small brewery. But people don't want to do that because some of these, I mean, they do, and they, they especially do in the States where, where localism is becoming the, the big driving trend. But they also want to buy the best craft beer. They also want to buy uh, their, their Trillium and they want to buy their what used to be Beaver Town and things like that because these are the beers that are getting most hyped by people. And if, and if you're a brewer... Uh, working on a low margin business and you go well actually no you're not allowed to buy our products because because uh, we don't want to sell too much of it then that's not a, you know these people do have mortgages to pay and things like that as well yeah i, I got your, i just pulled up uh, one issue with having books on kindle first of all i read a lot more on kindle but i, I can't always flip through the pages um it's it's a descartes quote is i think therefore i am so. Oh yes, sorry. I I I wasn't getting you. I wasn't getting. I thought you were saying Dick Clark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that's fantastic. That's brilliant. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, so Descartes' um, slightly less famous uh, thing was about um, about skill, and th- this is what sets us off on the whole on the whole uh, craft project. Really, uh, he said that. Uh, Basically, manual labor could also be done by machines and, in some cases, animals. Uh, so, therefore, that was lower. That was a lower skill than labor that entirely rely on. He said that was a lower skill than labor which relied on the human brain. So, basically, it created this whole system that we have still of white collar work being superior to to blue collar work. Uh, and that set us on the path that we're on. Where if you work in an office, you're better than a guy who works in a factory or a or or, or, a, or a workshop or, or something like that. Uh, and it's actually not true um, because manual labour is not just manual labour. Manual labour uh, involves an awful lot of, of mental skill as well. And and we're wrong to to decry it. And I think what we see now, I think part of the reason behind the rise of craft beer is it's part of a much bigger uh, return to us wanting to do something with our hands. And if we can't do it with our hands ourselves, then we want to support other people who do. And that's going back, right back to your first question about handcrafted. Um, we actually now start to think that there's a nobility in doing things like like in doing things by hand because anyone can do stuff with a machine. Um, and the connection between hand and head has become almost sacred. A lot of the stuff I was writing was talking about this reconnection of body and mind, the reconnection of of hand and head, uh, and the fact that my my mental skill translates into something that I can create with my hands, and uh, and there's something meaningful there instead of just an Excel spreadsheet at the end of the day. Uh, and this is why, as well as craft beer, we're seeing a huge rise around the world in uh, crafts in, in crafting. Um, Everything from macrame to making sourdough bread to carving wooden spoons—all these things are just in really huge growth. And and craft is craft beer is thriving within that context. Yeah, I, I think that in some way we all know what what craft means, and 
um, I really appreciate that you took the time to write this book. We could ask you a lot more questions. I mean, I, I feel like the origins of craft beer came about in the United States for one reason, because there were a couple giant breweries making crappy beer. And I'm, I'm sure that in England, there were very different circumstances and Cascales and camera, but I think that's a whole nother show. And, mm. and uh, did you ever write a book about that, about, about camera and um, the, the, how Cascale was saved in England? I covered it quite a lot in my first book, Man Walks Into a Pub, but I was covering it from a position that was fairly critical of camera at the time, uh, which I've kind of rode back from quite a bit now. Uh, I have a lot more time for camera than I used to. Well, that's good. And then the last thing is, is about diversity. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Garrett Oliver's initiative, the Michael Jackson Foundation. Um, I'm sure we're going to be doing a show with him this fall as well. But I think what he, his his argument is that there's there's more room at the table that craft beer uh, is a type of industry where everyone should be represented, not just as consumers, um, but but on the workforce. And I don't know if either one of you want to say anything, or if, if you're familiar with the new Michael Jackson Foundation, Stephen. Or- I, I saw I saw the the post that Garrett put up about that. Um, I think it's it's a it's a very very good initiative. Um, I, I'm firmly supporting it. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot about, uh, trying to sell to an audience that recognizes itself. And if your brewery is all white and male bros, then how are you going to sell to, um, you know, a black lesbian? How are you going to sell to, a, uh, a Latino? How are you going to sell to people who don't see themselves in your corporate layout? Um, and I think that that's something that that craft beer has to address. Um, you know, in Toronto is much like New York, I think, um, that there's a diversity in this city that you can see, like I can walk out my front door and, you know, walk two blocks before I actually hear someone speaking English. Um, it, and the, the, I love that about my city. Uh, but I, I go to not all, but some craft beer events. And I wonder, where is this diversity? Um, what happened to the rest of the city? Uh, because it, it becomes quite a, a white bro thing. And uh, I, I, I think that that's just missing the, missing the mark. And, and I don't think that craft breweries are intentionally being exclusive. I think that this is just something that's happened without them really considering it. And the time is now to consider it and consider who you're trying to, to add to your, your, your potential market and, and frankly, just being good human beings. That's great. I okay. think so. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's because uh, I see parallels with the the UK publishing industry as well, but which uh, like craft beer is is far more white than the uh, profile of the population in general, and and half the task is exactly what the foundation is doing and making sure ensuring that that brewers uh, are not being exclusive, not being uh, subconsciously or unintentionally. Um, uh, racially profiling and being racist in their in their hiring policies and in their inclusivity and in their diversity, but there's a there's a there's a circle here as well, which is that the industry also has to do a lot more to convince people of colour and people from different ethnic backgrounds that this is relevant to them because 
because it's so white and bro culture at the moment, I think part of the problem is that a lot of people just think, well, that's not my scene. It's not relevant to me. And so that's, that's a job that needs to be done as well. That's great. And then, um, VR, anything else you want to say to wrap up the show? No, no, I just, I agree with, with what, uh, what both Pete and Stephen have said about uh, a diversity. I mean, it's, you know, like kind of attracts like, so whether it's in terms of hiring or, um, you know, festivals, uh, it, whether it's unintentional or or, or not, um, it, there definitely has to be more focus and more thought put into whether it's the marketing, whether it's hiring. Um, you know, I remember being at a beer festival in in Belgium, you know, maybe about ten years ago, and compared to beer festivals in the U.S., it was full of families. I mean, it was you know, in terms of the demographics, it was there was there were grandparents, there was grandchildren. It was a very I mean, this also speaks to drinking culture in the US compared to Europe. But it was a very welcoming scene. It wasn't a bunch of people trying to get drunk or a bunch of bros, you know, ticking off uh what they're, you know, wanted to, you know, in their uh you know, their their collections. Um and it was much it seemed more welcoming to to people, and I think that that's what we need to do in the beer industry. Is, is there's more and more women that have been able to join. There's still some misogyny, and that certainly hasn't gone away. And but we need to be more inclusive, uh, ethically as ethic, ethnically and racially as well, because it's just it is a bro culture. It really still is, and and that doesn't make it easier for people who want to get into the scene because they might find it too clickish as opposed to wanting to enjoy a good product. All right. Well, this has been a really great show. It's Stephen Beaumont. Uh, writer from Toronto, B.R. Royer from Shelton Brothers, and Pete Brown. Pete, one more time, tell us the name of your new book. It's called Craft and Argument, uh, and it is out on Amazon right now. And I'm going to call this episode Craft with C-R-A-E-F-T, Craft. <laughs> and this, the title is going to be Size Doesn't Matter. So Excellent. Take, that, Excellent. take that with you, boys. So thanks, everyone, for joining me. Big shout-out to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, our head engineer, Matt Patterson. Uh, thanks to Steve, BR, and Pete. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us here on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.